Already at the turn of the first century, we know from the writings of Clement of Rome and Polycarp of Smyrna, they were inspired by the words that Peter wrote in this first epistle. As one author has noted, especially in times of national calamity, social upheaval, and personal tragedy, those acute moments of alienation, estrangement, and disorientation, countless Christians have found comfort and consolation in these words once addressed to society's strangers and aliens. This is our third Sunday looking at Peter's first epistle. I pray that we will be comforted and we will learn as we go through it. We've noted as in our study that this letter follows the pattern of letters in the ancient world. First, we find out who's written it. It's written by Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. The persons who are addressed, a greeting of some sort, and then thanksgiving for the recipient's well-being. These we have seen thus far. And just to review quickly, it is addressed to God's elect, if you look in verse 1, strangers in the world scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood. Peter writes to people that, as best we can tell, he had never met. And so he doesn't identify them as such by name. Rather, he seeks to impress on them who they are in case they have forgotten who they are. And he does so by using three striking categories, which to the Jews of the diaspora of that point, at that point would have been very familiar. They are God's elect, they are strangers in the world, and they are scattered. They are elect, they are chosen. They are strangers or exiles, and they are scattered. They belong to the diaspora. And as one author has noted, and I've mentioned this before, that the first two at least seem almost oxymoronic, that they are chosen strangers or elect exiles. But I believe that Peter, in identifying his readers, and he does it for their benefit, not his, wants to point out the tension of being a believer living in the present world. Just to mention, by way of review, in identifying the recipients of the letter, there are at least two striking features. First of all, the use of Old Testament imagery and language. And secondly, the mention of the Trinity. There's a Trinitarian approach as Peter writes this. To people who are strangers in the world, that is, those who are God's people, there are several temptations. The first is to embrace the practices of the surrounding culture. We call this assimilation or perhaps defection when one leaves the Christian faith because one cannot take the pressures of being a Christian in this present world. Peter writes this letter to these people, instructing them on how they are to live, and that, in fact, they are not to assimilate. They are to be, as we will see today, holy. The second temptation is in the midst of this chaos, one might question one's status before God. And that is why, in my opinion, uh, Peter emphasizes as much as he does in the first 12 verses, the members of the Trinity. This is where we should always start in a discussion about who we are, what it means to be a child of God. This is where we should start when we talk about living as a Christian. It should begin with the reality of Father, Son, and Spirit. The foundation is not found in ourselves, but in God's work. 
The greeting is the third part, and it is rather brief, but it speaks volumes. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Grace, which reflects the basis of God's work, and peace, which I think is very much an Old Testament word, shalom, that is brought into the New Testament, speaks of how God will transform all things and make all things right. The fourth part of the letter we saw last time we met two weeks ago uh, is thanksgiving, and it is from verse 3 to verse number 12. But in Greek, it is all one sentence, one rather extended sentence. And as Peter gives thanks for the recipients, those to whom he is writing, he points out the tensions of what it means to be a Christian in the world. There are at least four main ideas that we saw when we went through this. Let me just say, even though this is Thanksgiving, in many ways it serves as an introduction of sorts, a foundation of such. The rest of the letter, in, in many ways, would not stand without these nine verses. It is much more than Thanksgiving. It's much more than introduction. Verses 3, 4, and 5, Peter praises God for the hope of salvation. Here again, we see Jewish or Old Testament metaphors that God in the Old Testament has made promises to his people and now he has acted in conformity with those promises to show his love and compassion. The phrase great mercy is an echo of what we hear in the Old Testament that reflects Old Testament language. And then the idea of an inheritance. As Israel was traveling through the wilderness for 40 years, Moses spoke of where they were going as the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess as your inheritance. So the Old Testament language has been, in a sense, brought into the New Testament and reworked to speak of eternal things. And so Peter says our inheritance is something that can never perish, that can never spoil, that can never fade. Unlike the promised land, which is temporal, that which we are given through Jesus Christ is eternal. Secondly, we see in verses 6 and 7 the testing of our faith. And again, the, the tension we're elect, but we are strangers. We have hope, but we have faith. And here we rejoice in the face of suffering. I could say a lot about this, but I would just have you look at verse number 7. These have come so that your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. The third thing in this Thanksgiving is found in verses 8 and 9, and that is the hidden presence of Christ. Um, thus far in this letter, uh, Peter has told his readers that the Christian life is one of hope, despite the fact that our future salvation has not yet been revealed. It is one of rejoicing, despite the present testing of our faith. Now he tells them that it is one of believing, despite the fact that one has not seen Jesus. Peter had seen Jesus. He had spent time with him. But the, the people to whom he is writing have not. And yet, as he says, they love him even though they have not seen him. And they believe in him. And as I mentioned when I, we went through this, I think it should tell us something that love and belief are much more than emotions. Sometimes we reduce them to that. But in fact, love is more than emotion and belief is much more than simply mental assent. That when we take the two together, we're given something quite organic, something that is very real and 
And Peter gives thanks that these people who have never seen Jesus of Nazareth, yet they love him and they believe in him. May the same be true of us today. The fourth thing is found in verses 10, 11, and 12. And here Paul, uh, Peter connects the Old Testament with the New Testament, showing that the prophets of the Old Testament were looking ahead to what we find in the New Testament, the coming of salvation through Jesus Christ. There's so much we could say, but we must move on. I want to impress this on you, that these verses fit within the category of thanksgiving. They follow the pattern of letters in the ancient world. But they have much to teach us. This is not fluff. This isn't just sort of fluffy stuff before we get to the real meat of what Peter wants to say. That this is the case, I base my argument in part on one word. The first word of verse number 13. It is the word, therefore. I looked it up in the dictionary. The dictionary has the following. Therefore means for that reason, consequently, or because of that. So when he starts in verse number 13 and says, therefore, we would have to ask for what reason or because of what? It is because of what he's just said in verses 3 through 12. They're not just filler. They're not just fluff. They are the basis for what Peter will write in the rest of this letter. As I mentioned earlier, one of the temptations we face uh, when dealing with sufferings or trial is the temptation to embrace the practices of the surrounding culture. This is what Peter will uh, deal with beginning here. We are not to give in in the face of trials, but we are to stand our ground. Before we get to verses 13 and the ones that follow, Uh, Let me give you some background. What we do here is we we study it verse by verse. We study scripture verse by verse. But oftentimes because we do that, I think we lose the flow of what is being said and we lose the mood of what is happening. Because in verse number 13, the mood changes quite dramatically. And not simply an emotional mood, but in terms of grammar. Up to verse number 12, what Peter has been doing is been using grammatically the indicative. That is, he's been stating facts. Okay, this is what is true. This is the factness of your faith and your hope that God raised Jesus from the dead. But beginning in verse number 13, uh, Peter leaves the indicative behind and shifts to what we call the imperative mood. Now he is going to give them instruction in the form of command. From this point on, this is what we find in this letter. Based on the factness of what he has said up to verse number 12, Peter now tells his readers, this is what you must do. Peter now speaks of obedience, and he does so in terms of command. I think, here we are, we've come together to worship God, but I think if we would be honest, somewhere deep inside, we sort of resent the notion of obedience as something we are commanded to do. I think we would prefer to think that, that each of us sort of lives in a moral Switzerland, you know, this neutral place, And if we want to, we can choose to obey. If we want to, we can choose to disobey. But but otherwise, we're just sort of neutral about everything. This is simply not the case. One is either obedient or disobedient. One is never neutral. 
And so we must be commanded to be obedient. It is not something that, "Mm, let me think about it. Okay, I think I'll be obedient. It is something we are commanded to do. Peter begins in verse number 13. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. This is one of those passages in which the New International Version sort of lets us down. It is unfortunate that it's rather bland or weak here. Um, Perhaps it's trying to be a little bit uh, not neutral, but it doesn't want to be too graphic. The King James actually is much better here when it says, uh, gird up the loins of your mind. Well, you know, talk about loins. You know, we don't want to do that. You know, it's, but in fact, the picture comes from the first Passover. That the people were told, when you eat the Passover, you need to be dressed. You need to be ready when the time, if it happens, you're in the middle of the meal, you drop everything and you run out the door because you are ready. You're not in your casual clothes, you're ready for the journey. And as Peter begins here with his instruction, the first thing he says is, the context of you listening to what I'm going to say and doing what I tell you is you need to be prepared. You need to be ready for the journey because, in fact, the Christian life is a journey. It is a pilgrimage. You need to be ready. Your minds need to be ready. Let me just read to you from Exodus. This is how you are to eat it. That is the Passover meal. With your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. I don't think it's the haste that Peter has in mind, but rather the preparedness for the journey. Like the ancient Israelites who were chosen strangers and elect exiles, we are the people of God and we are chosen strangers. So we are to be prepared. At the same time, we are to be sober. This is a term that we usually associate with intoxicants or being intoxicated, that being intoxicated usually means that you have lost some motor skills. Perhaps you have lost the ability to make rational decisions. You've been impaired. I think above all, it points to a lack of alertness. If you're to be prepared for the journey, then you need to be sober. You need to be awake. You need to be ready to go. In light of the tension of being a child of God in this world, we need to be alert clear-thinking, clear-headed. This is the context. And with this in mind, Peter tells his readers, set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. This is not the first time that we have seen the word hope in this letter. Which, by the way, verse number 13, we're still only in the third sentence of this letter. If you go back to verse number 3, you'll see, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We talked about this, but what is hope? Hope is a conviction that something will happen in the future. In scripture, this hope always has a basis. It isn't simply like, I hope so, but there is in fact a reason for having that hope. As I said before, we do not believe in hope in hope or faith in faith. Our hope is based in the fact that God raised Jesus from the dead. That has happened and something in the future has been promised and God has kept his promises in the past and he will in the future. 
And therefore we have this hope. Just as God the Father raised Jesus from the dead, so he has an inheritance prepared for us. An inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. But let's be clear about something. When we speak of the future hope, it has real connections to the past and the present. We shouldn't simply say, well, you know, later on, then that's, that's when we get you know, it's the great reveal, if you wish, and we will get what it is God has promised. God has given us new birth into a living hope right now. We have that hope now. One day, the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed, we will see the fullness of God's grace and salvation. That needs to be our focus. But in fact, our circumstances may distract us, may divert our attention, our focus from that hope. This is why he starts out by saying, you need to be prepared and sober. Although there is not a hint of it here. I could not help but when I was going through this, but remember Peter's experience the night when Jesus was betrayed and when he was arrested. You may remember that at the Last Supper, Jesus had said that they would all abandon him. And Peter asserted that he was willing to die for Jesus. He was willing to die with Jesus. But then he was cowed by a young maiden who said, You talk funny. You have a Galilean accent. He was prepared to die, but he wasn't prepared to be challenged by a young girl. So as Peter begins with his instructions, his commands, he does so in the context of being prepared and being sober. But again, let's not think, okay, okay, I'm ready. I'm, I'm, I'm ready to take it on. That is not, I would say, the sum total of what it means to be a Christian. We are to live active lives of obedience. We aren't simply being prepared or being sober, but we are, in fact, to be obedient as we are the children of God, we will see in verse number 17 that God is our Father. Um, there are certain things that are required of us. We read it today, or you listened as I read from Psalm 103. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a snake. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? In the Bible, the characteristic uh, quality that is associated with the Father is one who cares for his children. Granted, our human fathers do not always live up to the standard, but God, our heavenly Father, does. He takes care of us. He has compassion on us. As his children, the characteristic that is required of us is obedience. The children of God, we used to be the children of darkness. And we have been redeemed from the kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of his dear son. There are both negative and positive aspects to obedience. Look, if you would, at verse number 14. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. If we are to be marked by obedience, we are not to be disobedient, by the way, a word that Peter does not use here, but which he describes in at least two ways. Do not conform to the evil desires you had 
And then secondly, when you lived in ignorance. Negatively, obedience means don't do the things that you used to do. Do not conform to the way of the world. And, and why do people live that way? It's because of ignorance. In Acts chapter 17, when Paul was in Athens, he, he preached to people who had an altar to the unknown God, someone that they were ignorant of. And he says, in the past, God overlooked such ignorance. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. And then in writing to the Ephesians in chapter 4, So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. They do not know God, and therefore they live lives of disobedience. As children of God, we cannot claim ignorance. We cannot plead ignorance. This cannot be a viable excuse for us. We have no excuse for conforming to the pattern of this world. So negatively, obedience must not be marked by these things. But it's not simply a matter of don't do this or do that. There's a positive aspect to it as well. Look, if you would, at verses 15 and 16. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. i just point out to you that verse number 16 is actually a statement taken from the Old Testament. This is found in the book of Leviticus several times. It is from the Old Testament that we learn what it means to be holy. It is used of God as one who is apart, one who is separate. Today we would say one who is other. But then there are things and people that he designates as holy, which means that they have been set apart. They are different from others. When it is used of people or things, it has that sense of being set apart. So when Israel goes to Mount Sinai, the covenant there is going to be established, and as we saw, the blood will be sprinkled on the people. God said to them, Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That is... There are many nations, but you will be a separate nation. You will be a nation for me. By the way, if you're keeping track, in chapter 2, verse number 9, Peter will use very similar language. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. In the Old Testament, we read of holy days. There are days, just like every other day, but they are different in that they are set apart for something. We read of holy ground. It's ground like other ground, but it's been set apart. It's been made holy. We have the priesthood made up of men who are human, but they've been set apart for the work of worshiping God. In the New Testament, Christians are holy. We are still people. But we are different from other people. And, and how is it that we are different? Are we better than other people? No, it is because we belong to God. It is because we are in Christ Jesus. It is because we are to be separate from the world in the way that we live. Be holy in all you do. We may do, in fact, the same things our neighbors do. 
but for entirely different reasons. Consider what Paul wrote to the Corinthians. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Christians are not the only people on this planet who eat and drink. Human beings eat and drink. We need to to stay alive. But Christians are to be holy, are to be separate, are to be different, in that in their eating and drinking, they do it for a different reason. They do it for the glory of God. Or consider what Paul wrote to the Philippians. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look out, uh, look not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Christians are to be ambitious, I would say. We are to be driven. We are to do the things God has called us to do. But not selfish ambition. Not vain conceit. What all is involved in holy living... Peter will spell out as this letter unfolds. In the meantime, if you look at verse number 17, since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. If God is your father and he is holy, then this means you are to be holy as his child. If God is our judge, we're not to judge ourselves, our neighbors are not to judge us, then we are to take care of how we live. We are to live our lives as strangers here in reverent fear. Now, if Peter were to stop here, I think we would end up with a rather distorted view of what it means to be a Christian. I think it would paint a false picture of what many people think it means to be a Christian, and not simply non-Christians, but Christians as well. That we do what we do because we're fearful, because we're afraid that God's going to zap us, And so we're just always cringing, wondering when God's going to get us for something that we've done wrong. If this is where Peter were to end. But he doesn't end there. And I'm convinced that what follows really sort of opens up verse number 17. Look, if you would, at verses 18 through 21. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. So, before we can talk about living holy lives, we need to be reminded that we were not born as holy individuals. We were born, in fact, into bondage. Bondage to a particular way of life inherited from our ancestors. While we may put great stock in our ancestry and in tradition, Peter wants his readers to know that we were born into an empty way of life. was handed down from our forefathers. And the only way that we are the children of God is that we were redeemed, we were ransomed out of that empty way of life by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. The redemption was not paid for with some commodity, such as gold or silver, or in today's economy, maybe money, or something lighter like diamonds, something you can carry with you. But all of these are perishable. It is with the precious blood of Christ that we were redeemed. 
I don't know if it strikes you as strange, but it does me that Peter includes the word precious to describe the blood of Christ. It almost seems like redundant, but I think we need to be reminded and the readers need to be reminded the value of the death of Jesus Christ. It's a lamb without blemish or defect. Again, this comes from the Old Testament, the Old Testament sacrificial system. This means that Jesus did not simply die on the cross, but he died as a sacrifice. And he died as a sacrifice to redeem his people. It may be that Peter, in fact, is thinking of the Passover lamb, whose blood was to be put on the doorpost, so that when the angel of death saw the blood, he would pass over that house and spare the firstborn. The lamb's life was given so that those inside, the firstborn's lives, would be spared. Just to repeat, Jesus' death was not simply a death on a cross. It was, in fact, a sacrifice. And more than a sacrifice, it was redemption for his people. Now, what follows in verses 20 and 21 may seem superfluous. Um, He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and hope are in God. I think what is written here is truly important. Peter wants his readers to know the following. First of all, the sacrificial death of Jesus was no historical accident. It wasn't simply something that just happened. That he got arrested, he was betrayed by Judas and got arrested and then was crucified and it just sort of happened and and now we're trying to find some value in this senseless death. Um, No, this was God's plan all along since before he created the world. And should the reader be surprised at this? We shouldn't, because we are told at the beginning of the letter that we were chosen by the foreknowledge of God before God created the world. So, God knew even before the world was created that his son would have to give his life. The second thing Peter wants them to know is that the sacrificial death of Jesus was for the sake of his people. And and I love the way that he puts it. You know, is for your sake at the end of verse number 20. Thirdly, the sacrificial death of Jesus has resulted in his people believing in God. Faith is a gift from God. We do not have the capacity to believe in God on our own. We do not. It is because of the death of Jesus on the cross that we are given the gift of, gift of faith and we can believe. And so Peter says at the end here, and so your faith and hope are in God. With all this in mind, let's go back to verse number 17 and reconsider what he writes there. Live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. We have been redeemed from emptiness. We have been made the children of God. We have been given faith in God. We have been given a hope that will be realized when Jesus returns. Does it now seem strange what Peter writes in verse 17, that we are to live our lives as strangers here in reverent fear? I don't think so. Two things that the Lord willing we will discuss in the future. Again, we read of being strangers. We saw that in verse 1. Peter will revisit this in chapter 4. But being holy, being set apart, makes sense if in fact you are a stranger living in this world. Holy stranger makes a lot more sense than chosen stranger. But we are both. 
God has set us apart and we are to live holy lives. And secondly, Peter points to reverent fear. This is usually what we mean, what we find in scripture when we read about the fear of the Lord. But Peter makes it clear. And and I'm glad that he does. That there is to be reverence as we do what God has called us to do. Okay, great. How am I supposed to live out my life in reverent fear? How does this to be worked out in practical terms? Well, Peter begins to tell his readers in verse number 22 and through the next three chapters. And he begins where you might expect, with love. We will look at what follows next Sunday, the Lord willing, but I want to read it to you. I must read it to you. Beginning at verse 22. Now that you have, been, you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. For all men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. As we have been so painfully reminded recently, our time here is so short. Like grass and flowers that are here and then are gone. But we have been given new life, eternal life. We have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable. Therefore, we are strangers here. And there will be that tension We may in fact suffer. We may go through great trials. But that's okay because we've been given something that is eternal that will never pass away. We've left the introductory part of this letter, but I hope that you've seen that it's much more than introduction. It in fact establishes what Peter wants to write in the rest of this letter. And a shift has occurred from telling his readers what has happened to commanding or instructing them how they should live. Um, Again, I have in my notes that we don't like the word commanding. Uh, I think we would prefer the word suggest or suggestion that maybe this is the way you should live since you are a Christian. But in our passage today, we've seen three commands, three imperatives. If I haven't pointed them out clearly enough, let me do so here at the end. First of all, in verse number 13, set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. Hope being the conviction that something will happen in the future. The context of this hope is being prepared and being sober. And so we are to set our hope fully on the grace to be given. The second imperative is to be holy, and the context is that God himself is holy. We are to be holy as he is holy. And the third imperative is live in reverent fear. The context being the reality that we have been redeemed from an empty way of life. We now have been given real purpose to our lives. This is how we are supposed to live. Now we have been called to a life of imitation. Made in the image of a holy God, we are called to be holy. Now the children of God, we are called to be like our Father. And the Lord willing, in the weeks to come, we will see how Peter spells this out in his first letter.
Let's pray together. Father, we are happy enough to hear words of salvation and of grace and heaven and eternity. We are less enthused by words like obedience and command and reverent fear. I thank you for what Peter has written in his first letter, for the wonderful reminder that our salvation costs the precious blood of Jesus Christ and that we were redeemed, we were ransomed out of an empty way of life. And we may, in fact, be doing the same things we did before we became Christians, but now our life has purpose. It has a reason. It has direction. We are holy. We are set apart. We are your people. How easily we forget this. May your spirit drive these truths home in our hearts. May we think on them, meditate on them. Above all, may we not be hearers of the word only, but doers as well. I thank you that we could gather as your people in this place to worship you. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place today. May we have a sense of your presence day by day in this coming week. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand, please, as we sing the doxology together?